All right, today we, uh, we continue on in Mark. This is actually the last time we'll be in the Gospel of Mark here before uh, the end of the year. So find Mark chapter 14. And in the Red Pew Bible, we're going to start on page 851. And our text today is Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. For many bore false witness against them, but their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against them, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, haven't seen you guys in a while, so it's nice to see you. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, um, during this time as we enter into kind of a, a passion season, um, not in our calendar, but just in our study of scripture here, and as we enter into the season of Advent in our calendar, we want to take things a little slower and pause to see the real you, not the one we've conjured up in our head and not the one that we think answers to us, but you, Jesus, Lord, to see you for who you really are. And so as we are escorted into this path of your suffering and why you died, and then we enter into next month why you came, I pray that we would be able to see all of this more clearly and to gain a better understanding and a deeper love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, circumstances surrounding Jesus seem to be getting worse here. Um, Jesus had a very thriving, flourishing ministry for the previous three years here, and, and all that good that Jesus did doesn't seem to be leading him into uh, a very good place here. Uh, we know Jesus to be a healer, a miracle worker, um, a wise teacher. Now he's put on trial as uh, a criminal, and from a place of what outwardly looked like strength and confidence as he was healing people and raising people from the dead and calming storms and, and doing these miraculous things to distress 
and trouble and sorrow unto death. And so we're seeing all of these very, very uh, highs and lows uh, coming here. And, and instead of his friends coming to his side in his greatest time of need, they all left him. They abandoned him. And looking at this particular set of circumstances in this particular period, things just don't look good for Jesus and his followers at all. However, we don't actually see the entire picture uh, until we kind of step back away from it from 30,000 feet or from space and, and looking at it in its entirety. Uh, we're just seeing this respective period of world history here. Uh, where Jesus is being put on trial, but, but there's, there's a much greater story happening and, and in terms of time, from the beginning of time till where we are today, that this sliver of a story um, is just that. It's, it's not the entire picture. And so a story where Jesus was not at all surprised because he did have the grander picture in mind, that this particular sliver of history was not a surprising one for him because God had this planned all along. Now Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus was not a victim. God is in control of this, this greater story and Jesus knows exactly what's happening. A story which included riding into Jerusalem on a colt. This very purposeful act by Jesus from what he instructed his disciples to do in order to, to get to that cult and, and what that act of riding into Jerusalem meant. Because he didn't ride into Jerusalem as a conqueror on a white stallion. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey colt, meek, mild. And knowing that this was a prophecy to fulfill in Zechariah 9.9 where it's written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a very clear declaration of who Jesus is in accordance to Zechariah, and something that was really disturbing to the religious leaders as they, they saw Jesus had many people who were supporting him, behind him, cheering him on into the city. And Jesus did some other purposeful acts as well that, that really bothered these religious leaders. It wasn't just that particular one um, that landed him in, the, in this troublesome situation here in Mark chapter 14. There was a situation right after he rode in with, in with that donkey that he cleans out the temple. And they don't like this at all because this is how they make extra money for themselves. It's in Mark 11, starting in Vif Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. It seems like he's purposefully um, 
prodding these guys, right? Like, I'm going to ride on a donkey and show you all my support. I'm going to overturn these tables. I'm, I'm, and it's almost like he's purposely kind of riling these guys up, confronting these religious leaders of the day, and, and they really didn't like it. Then Jesus goes on, right after this event, he goes on to tell a parable against those religious leaders. In Mark 12, 12, we're told, and they were seeking to arrest him, but, the, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away, and they sent to him one of the Pharisees and one of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing would eventually get him in a lot of trouble. And that is the, the direction he actually led them down. He was doing these actions that kind of actually was, was spurring them on to destroy him, to arrest him, to kill him. He's actually moving this story along, and it's their pride that wouldn't lead them to repentance, but it's their pride that's driving them to, yeah, I want to kill him. Yeah, I want to destroy this guy. Yes, I want to arrest this guy. And so it led to this collusion with people that usually don't work with each other, like Herodians and these religious leaders. And it led to this type of collusion which, which was set out to kill Jesus, which is something that they weren't charged to do. This was uh, reserve, reserved for the Roman, Romans themselves to execute this, this capital punishment. Now, in their heads, they've already decided that Jesus was guilty, but how are they going to find him guilty of death? And so they're going to have to convince the Roman authorities that Jesus is guilty of death, but they're not going to be all that excited to say like, oh, they blasphemed against your God. We don't care. We don't care as the Roman government if they blaspheme your God. It is not worthy of, the, of capital punishment in our eyes, so you guys got to figure something else out. Then he claimed to be God to them, and so this is kind of the blasphemous thing that they want to charge him of, but the Romans really don't care if he claims to be God unless it's against Caesar. And so this is who Jesus declares himself to be. But who did they believe Jesus to be is a blasphemer. So a question for us is who do we believe Jesus to be? Is he the same Jesus who declared himself to be God, Messiah, Christ, Savior, or another Jesus that we've just kind of made up in our minds. And there's a fear in believing who Jesus claimed to be because if he really is who he claimed to be, we have to answer to that. There's an accountability to that. And it's so much less scary to make Jesus into who we want him to be because then we don't have to answer to that because we can just change it for ourselves to make that him answering to us. Verse 53 in Mark chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders. And the scribes came together. Now this group of people, they were the highest ruling council in, in the land. They were known as the Sanhedrin. It numbered about 70 men consisting of chief priests, elders, and scribes. This was Actually, not a trial here because the Jews were not allowed to hold trials. This, more, this is more of an interrogation. 
This is their investigation to devise some sort of indictment against Jesus to then bring to the Roman court to then hopefully get the Romans to kill Jesus. And so this charge of blasphemy that the Jews had against Jesus, again, not something the Jews really or Romans really cared about. So they, they know they're going to have to come up with some other charges that, that warrant capital punishment. And they're trying to conspire as how they're going to get Jesus killed. Verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking, to, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And so they already have this guilty verdict in their heads. They have this capital punishment ruling in their heads, but they couldn't muster up a charge. And instead of looking at the evidence that actually shows Jesus is who he says he is, what do they do? Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So in other words, they just flat out lied about Jesus. And then they went against their own commandments regarding bearing false witness against murder. And you can see how hard these people are fighting against Jesus, even though the evidence is not pointing at all to what they're wanting to prove. And so we can present all of these truths, but people have already made up their minds about Jesus. They already want to look at him as a criminal and worthy of death before knowing any truth about him. And there are many people, including people who claim to be Christian, who don't believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. There are people who are interested in a Jesus that they've created, but not in the Jesus we find here in the Bible. And so many people paint a picture of Jesus, which is not who he is at all. Some people don't even want to give Jesus a chance because they're fearful that their life will have to change. And they'd rather be a God of themselves and others rather than having God be God because they want to do what they want to do and no one is going to tell them how to live their life. But what are people really selling their life to and for how much? Because what we do does cost us. What we choose does cost us. And what we do with our life, it has ramifications. So what are we settling for? And I bring this up because I look at Judas, and Judas chose to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now who knows how much these other false witnesses were offered by the Sanhedrin to bear false testimony against Jesus, how, how much has been offered to you, to, to me? How, how, much is, how much is that addiction costing you? How much is that destructive relationship costing you? How much are those lifestyle choices or those choices that you're making within a marriage context or whatever you're doing, how much are those things costing you? See, we all have these moments of selling out Jesus. But when it's revealed to us, what what are we going to do about that? Are we going to repent or are we going to cash in those 30 pieces of silver that were offered to us, which is really not all that much? 
And sometimes we just don't care how little or how much it costs because we just don't want Jesus to enter a particular area of our lives. We just want that killed off. And so many times we're like the Sanhedrin. Doesn't matter how little, 30 pieces of silver, or how much. We don't know how much those other false witnesses were paid to, to lie. But you know what? We, all we know is we want to get rid of Jesus. It, it doesn't matter how much, how little, how much, it doesn't matter. We just want that out of our life. Now, some of these guys in Mark 14, they've had it out for Jesus for quite a long time. You can look back to Mark chapter 2. After he healed the paralytic, <clears throat> he healed the paralytic, he forgave that paralytic of his sins in Capernaum, Mark chapter 2, and they said this in verse 7 of Mark 2. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they don't like Jesus from very early on in his ministry. We're back at Mark chapter 2. And the more that they observe Jesus, the more that they don't like him because they didn't like what he was doing and they didn't like what he represented and they didn't like who he was hanging out with. Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. They asked in Mark chapter 2 verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus answered this in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't call people who think that they're fine. Fine with the gods that they were serving. He came for those who realized that they were really far from God. And this contempt and dislike continued because they didn't like what Jesus did because he healed on the Sabbath. But you see, this is how people view Jesus. We, we do what we want to do, how we want to do it, and when we want to do it. And we also want to dictate what we and others should think. And whoever doesn't follow how we do things, well... How do we get rid of them? How do we destroy that? And this is what's happening in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Prideful people will find Jesus very offensive and want to get rid of him. Jesus is offensive to people who believe that they're too smart for faith in him. People who pride themselves on knowing better than Jesus. And many people today are opposed to Jesus because Jesus offends their intellect. Jesus offends our morality. And there are people who are offended with the idea that we can't fix ourselves. And you just look at how many self-help materials are out there. If you go to Barnes and Noble and there's a whole section of self-help stuff, it's it's huge. It's a big section, or if you look on Amazon and you just type in self-help, it's, it's huge. We are a society that is obsessed with fixing ourselves, but we can't. And you have this, all this do-it-yourself stuff, but we can't. Because we fundamentally, we've missed the mark. And, and people think that we are hitting the mark, or that we can hit this mark, when it's not true. 
Now back to Mark chapter 14 in verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So these lies that they're telling, they're not, they're not lining up. You see, simple honesty is so much more consistent than the most well-thought-out lies. But they don't summon credible witnesses. They're just calling these false witnesses. I mean, because did they call anybody who was healed by Jesus or freed by Jesus or raised from the dead by Jesus? They don't call any of those people. They are only calling false witnesses. They weren't interested in calling credible witnesses. They weren't interested in honest testimonies. And, And that's some people today. We can put people transformed by God right before others, but, but if one's mind is already determined to discredit, disbelieve God, there's not all that much that can be done to change that person's mind if they've already set it to believing a certain thing. And so these false witnesses are getting nowhere, and then the high priest finally jumps in, verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now, we notice here that Jesus didn't answer these questions, and really, what was there to answer? These testimonies are all false. They don't agree with one another. So there's a reason for the silence, because what is he responding to? What is he answering? These are all lies. And so this silence made their false witness actually louder, that everyone there knew that these people's testimonies didn't line up. Is Jesus obliged to answer us? Who's God in this relationship? And and, and you look at another occurrence when Jesus was silent. It's when when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because he didn't want to deal with this not guilty ruling that he really wanted to proclaim. And so Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because Jesus was in his jurisdiction as a Galilean. And so this is what happened in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. He didn't answer Herod who really wanted to meet Jesus, but Jesus didn't answer him. You see, God does not have to answer us. He doesn't answer to us. And those who think, you know, God, if you're real, then you got to do this. I mean, really, isn't that a place of pride? Isn't that a place of arrogance? Isn't that a place of not knowing who we really are? And Jesus knows exactly the heart of people. He doesn't waste his time with prideful people who oppose him. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, pride will prevent one from hearing Jesus' voice. And it won't be because Jesus can't withstand someone's intellectual barrage. It's that one's pride will deafen someone from hearing Jesus. Jesus isn't obliged to answer to us, and the proud will not hear from him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
And back to Mark chapter 14 and verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now you notice that Jesus was silent at the previous questions, but he's not so here. He answers, and this interrogation is all very accusatory and really isn't about an investigation, but it's, it's this mob, this group that has already made a conclusion and is attempting to prove it while they are just failing miserably at it. Even with all the false witnesses, they can't prove anything. But here Jesus clearly answers that he's Messiah. He de- declared it himself that he is, and he doesn't need any other earthly witness to support him or affirm him of what is already true. Everyone in the spiritual world knows that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. See, every spiritual being knows exactly who Jesus is, and they're not going to interrogate Jesus about who he is. They know exactly who Jesus is. Now, now take a look at what Jesus told these unclean spirits in Mark 3, verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now hop over to Mark chapter 8. This is right after Peter declared, you are the Christ. This is in Caesarea Philippi that Peter said this. And in chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, Jesus didn't want anyone to know he is king just yet. That we are in his kingdom. But here in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, is when Jesus decided, I'm going to let everybody know. I'm going to let everybody in on what all of the spiritual realm already knows, what my disciples already know because they they figured this out in in Caesarea Philippi. I'm going to let everybody else know about this now. And so he makes it public. And so when the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And I think that the high priest asked Jesus this question in a really, really sarcastic way and condescending way. Because think about this. Jesus has just been hauled away from the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples all desert him. He's he's abandoned. He's by himself. Then he's being interrogated by all these people who are against him, and he's just silent the whole time. And, And then the high priest is looking at him and saying, are you the Christ? I mean, look at this. Look at everything around you. How can you be? All your followers have left you. Are you, you, the son of the blessed? Because literally, you're a bloody mess. Because Jesus was sweating drops of blood. And you're, you, you have no answers for anybody here. And all these people here are against you. And yes, we're telling lies about you, but we're still all against you. So, are you really the Christ? Because look at where you're at. You don't look to be a king at all. You don't look to be anybody of a high status at all. Now, something about Jesus, even with all the circumstances he found himself in, he knew the truth. 
He knew his purpose. He knew his mission. He knew why he was sent by God. And so he can answer confidently, I am. Even with all this stuff that doesn't look good around me, I am. That's who I am. But no one looking just at him physically and right there in the physical realm would ever recognize Jesus as king. Because he's not materially wealthy. He doesn't have this powerful military behind him. He's not this well-networked person with all the most powerful rulers of the world around him. He just does not fit the part of a Messiah, which is not a surprise. Look at Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We will never be able to see Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the Son of the Blessed, with our earthly eyes. You won't be able to see him. We will only be able to see Jesus as Christ with spiritual eyes. When Jesus was hung on the cross, there was a centurion there who stood facing Jesus, who was there until Jesus' very last breath. And he said this in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, truly this man was the son of God. It's not that the centurion saw this with his earthly eyes. There was a spiritual awakening in that centurion. Think about this. That centurion who oversaw Jesus' crucifixion was in charge of seeing many, many, many crucifixions. That was his job, to carry out these deaths. So you imagine how many deaths this guy has seen. But Jesus on the cross was different for him. And even though he saw so many die from crucifixion, this one was different. And some of you understand this. Some of you remember when God opened your eyes to see him for who he really is. You were going through something and you were able to recognize that. You, you recall you saw things before Jesus opened your eyes. But the people at this interrogation, none of them see who Jesus really is. Even though Jesus clearly takes them back into the Old Testament and Jesus clearly points them to Zechariah. And if they knew Isaiah 53 well, they would recognize, yeah, you know what? The Messiah isn't going to be something for us to behold. That we're not going to see him for who we think he is. This whole son of man thing, referring back to Daniel chapter 7, where it reads in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And this is essentially what Jesus was saying in verse 62. The second part of it after he says, I am, he says this. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's essentially Daniel 7. 
the Jews at this time had a really strong sense that Messiah would come as a, a political ruler, that he would come and overthrow any oppressors in all governments, one who would be in power without any borders over all people, over all nations, which is how they interpreted Daniel 7. But the Son of Man will not just rule over the earth. His kingdom does not have borders. And what they saw as a humble and meek Jesus will actually be a very different picture after the resurrection. And some of them actually did see this. I think that some of the people that were there interrogating Jesus in the Sanhedrin are some of the same people that we find here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And it reads this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That they didn't recognize this until after the resurrection. Some of them did see Jesus as the Christ after the resurrection, but some of them didn't. Some stayed blind. Some kept to their positions, and they didn't consider that what Jesus said could possibly be true, including the high priest. Now, verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? Now, this tearing of the garments, it typically meant a, a sign of grief. And we're not sure if this was a sign of grief or a sign of victory. Like, you know, yes! Like, finally! You know how, like, athletes get after they win? They just, like, tear things off. And they, I don't know if that's what this guy was doing. I think it, is, it was, actually. But what happens here in verse 63, it's kind of, uh, it's really bizarre to me. Because he says this. What further witnesses do we need? What? Like, you didn't present one. There was not even one credible witness. What do you mean, what further? You need a lot more is what you need. And they're, they're all contradicting each other. Their stories don't align. And all of them lied. The only honest one here is Jesus. Verse 64, you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Again, they have this ruling before Jesus is even brought here. And that guilty verdict was already decided before this interrogation. And you keep in mind that, man, this is the highest religious court making this decision. And if anybody should know better, if anybody knows Zechariah, if anybody knows Isaiah, if anybody knows Daniel, it's these guys. They're supposed to know better. This is very convicting because church, we're supposed to know better. You know, all these things that are happening around us, whether it's a justice issue or it's a lifestyle issue or a morality issue, like we're the ones that are supposed to know better. Yet, sometimes we're just like this court. We have an end verdict in mind already and nothing's going to change our mind. It doesn't stop us from making decisions that we know are better. Verse 65, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. See, these are supposed to be God-loving people. And here is where we find them. Spitting, which is, is a sign of contempt. It's a sign of disrespect. 
and striking violence on an innocent man, mocking him and beating him. This is very inhumane. You see, as followers of God, we know better. We know better. Yet sometimes we get caught up in doing some terrible things. We're told to honor everyone, yet how often we see that we hurl insults. And this is everyone, right? We, if you're on the very progressive side of things, we hurl insults in our own government, in our own leadership. And if you're on the very conservative side of things, you hurl insults on immigration issues, on Muslim refugees, like you, everyone's just kind of hurling insults all over the place and, and we're causing harm no matter what side we're on. We're mocking each other no matter what side we're on. Now, if we put ourselves as the receiver of these insults and, and the receivers of this harm and this mocking because we're following Jesus, if we put ourselves in that place, it should not surprise us at all that we are experiencing that inhumanity, those insults, those harms, those, that mocking from the most educated people in our society who claim that there is no God, who claim that it's foolishness, because the most educated people of this time are the Sanhedrin. They are the scholars. They are the most educated of the time. So it's no surprise that in our higher places of higher education that they would be the ones to mock followers of Jesus. It's not a surprise. They were the people who had social justice in mind, the Sanhedrin, who were serving their communities, who organized ways to serve the poor, who, to serve the widows, to, to help people who were orphans. Yet here we find them Mocking Jesus. Is it all that surprising that our places of higher education, the people in our world who value and do a lot of this social justice work today all over our world, are the very ones who mock Jesus? It's, it's not. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's just history repeating itself. So to think that we're elevating these people because they have so much education, they're doing so much good in the world, therefore they must be the ones who have it right, is false. Because these guys had it all wrong. And we're probably all guilty of mistreating each other, and we're probably all guilty of misrepresenting God along the line. History, world history, proves how bad Christians have treated each other and people outside of their faith. World history also proves how badly people have mistreated Christians. It's all around. Now, here's something that all of those guilty parties have in common. They have a self-righteous pride that is absent of God. And what we need to do in this time of looking at the end of Jesus' life and moving into the birth of Jesus in our Advent season is to hold on to the real Jesus. 
not who we think of him to be, but who is presented to us in the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, we um, falsely hold people in different pedestals thinking that they are the most intelligent, they are the most wise, they are the most resourced, they are the most wealthy, and therefore we should follow them. And yet, that is one of the very first things you warn of us in ter- warn us of in terms of that idolatry. And so, God, would you give us spiritual eyes to see the real you? We know these scriptures that are before us, but yet we can be so blinded because we already have this end result that we want to see. So God, would you remove that end result and help us just to see truth? The Sanhedrin would have clearly seen truth if they saw the scriptures clearly. And the funny thing is, is that they so diligently studied them that they could recite them by heart yet they weren't able to live by them and so even seeing you as Isaiah 53 presented you seeing you as Zechariah 9 presented you seeing you as Daniel 7 presented you they still could not see it even though they knew those things and how much of that is true for our church today that we know all of these scriptures and we know all of these things and we could even recite them but we so badly mistreat other people. We hurl insults at them. God, forgive us. Help us to have humility in ourselves and not a self-righteousness to think that we are gods. In Jesus' name, amen.